Welcome to Big Questions. This is Gal Bussman. Last week, I was seated on a plane, coming home from a speaking engagement. Person to the left of me coughed. Person on the other side of the aisle sneezed. And I thought, oh boy. Well, it's been a few days and I have no symptoms of coronavirus. See myself in good health, but it got me to thinking about everything I didn't really know about this virus. I knew from news reports that it originated from animals and started in a market in Wuhan, China. By Sunday, March 1st, I knew it had affected roughly 87,000 people and counting around the world. And I knew most of the reported cases are in China, where there have been more than 2,600 deaths due to the virus. By the time you hear this, those numbers are sure to be up. Coronavirus has spread to more than 30 countries, and as you probably know, Japan, South Korea, Iran, and Italy have been hit hard, and there have been deaths in the United States, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and France, as well as many other countries. I remember the AIDS scare back in the 80s and the early 90s, and all the misinformation at the time, and I've once again come to see the beauty of a podcast. You can take an hour or more and devote it to a topic like coronavirus and give very clear information that will be helpful to a lot of people. That's what I'm going to do this week. What I didn't want to do is have on a guest who was going to speak in medical jargon and acronyms. What I didn't want to do was have on somebody who'd let politics influence her or his answers. I wanted to give everyone advice as if it were coming from an aunt or an uncle who knew a lot about the subject, an aunt or an uncle who cared about you, an aunt or an uncle that you could depend on. I began telling people about the kind of person I was looking for, and that's how I found out about Aunt Mitzi. She's a Harvard grad, 78 years old, got 12 great-grandkids, and she spent much of her life writing about health. She's interviewed hundreds of leaders in healthcare over the years, has sources throughout Asia, and she talks as clearly as an elementary school teacher. She speaks in real detail about the difference between the flu and coronavirus, about washing your hands, shaking hands, kissing, face masks. As you'll hear, to Aunt Mitzi, washing your hands means carefully lathering up and really paying attention to those hard-to-get-to areas under the nails for 20 seconds. That's about as long as singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star or the alphabet song. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way to Z. After she told me this, I went to a mall, stopped in a men's bathroom to see how long people were washing for. Hardly anybody got to Z. Some guys were finished before they got to G. Now, there is a place in our conversation where Aunt Mitzi talks about making a homemade mask with paper towels, tissues, and masking tape that is highly effective. I realize that most listeners aren't going to do that, but people listen to big questions as far off as Mongolia. 
and knowledge of how to put that homemade model together may save somebody's life. Anybody in need can get more information about it at Mitzi at AuntMitzi.com. She took out the name of the website after I told her we all need an Aunt Mitzi. Once again, that's Mitzi at AuntMitzi.com. M-I-T-Z-I at Aunt, A-U-N-T, Mitzi, M-I-T-Z-I dot com. Some of her advice opens our eyes to worst case scenarios. I didn't go in this direction to be alarmist. It's just that I already see big changes. NASA has seen pollution over China disappear because factories aren't putting gases in the air because people aren't working. If people don't go to work to hold back the virus, we might want to think about Aunt Mitzi's advice on making sure we have stocked enough food. Public gatherings like Carnival in Nice have been canceled, and sumo matches in Japan will be taking place in arenas without spectators. Aunt Mitzi is in line with this kind of thinking. She told me she would recommend that I stay away from movie theaters and large groups of people till more information is available. Aunt Mitzi is operating out of an overabundance of caution. And my overall takeaway is this is really a race against time. Flu season generally ends when warm weather comes. We can only hope that this particular virus will fizzle out like the flu when the temperature rises. If it doesn't, we're going to be in new territory and Aunt Mitzi's words will hold even deeper meaning. So I'm simply going to play our conversation. Aunt Mitzi's on the East Coast. I'm on the West. I recorded the conversation over Zoom. I want to thank my sponsor, Sportique, for bringing it to you. Sportique threads always make you feel comfortable, and we can all use a little comfort in times like these. If you want a 20% discount, Go to sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com, and use the offer code CAL. Now, let's get a little comfort and some really good advice from Aunt Mitzi. Welcome, Aunt Mitzi. What a joy to be here with you and with your listeners. Thank you so much. And how many great-grandchildren do you have? I've got 12 of them. 12 great-grandchildren. Well, this podcast is aimed at having you respond to questions as if it w- they were coming from your great-grandchildren. Perfect. And I'll give answers. Uh, they're, they're not going to be terribly technical, but they will be, I hope, useful to them. But it would also be, uh, it's my opinions, but it's my opinions based on how about 40 years of being a science writer and a health writer? There you go. That's why you're here. <laughs> okay, so let's start with the basics. What's the difference between the flu and the coronavirus? The differences of the novel coronavirus that's come about, it began in, well, about half a year ago. Well, it began, really, we think it began October, November in China. The difference between that and a regular flu, I'm so glad you asked because many people just think, well, a flu is a flu. It's not. A regular flu in the United States 
has a case fatality ratio of about one in a thousand. If you're in fairly good health, the flu is unlikely to do you in. I mean, if you have some other comorbidity, some other thing that you're ill with, it could push you over. But in general, flus are not lethal. So contrast one in a thousand for relatively healthy people with possibly as much as one in 50 chances of dying. And that's what you've got with the coronavirus. And this is going to vary country by country because I'm going to guess that when it actually comes down to it in the United States, we have such advanced medical systems and we, we have a fairly you know, relative to a good bit of the world. We've got fairly good hygiene practices. So I could guess that it might be one in a hundred, but still one in a hundred. I mean, you know, a hundred people, imagine one of them isn't there a year from now and that's not impossible. So the, the, first of all, the fatality rate is just vastly higher. But then on top of that, the characteristics of the illness make it much, much worse. And as an example, if you get the regular flu, you're probably not going to be hospitalized. In the case of the coronavirus, you have about a 20% chance of being hospitalized. And then among the really evil aspects of this is there's an economic part to it because typically you're in the hospital in intensive care for good. I mean, for many people, they will be in intensive care and that can be typically it's around 11 days. It can be 20 days. You're in the intensive care unit for 11 days. You can easily be up against a $750,000 medical bill. You don't get that with the regular flu. Oh man. I, I spent much of the last year, a good part of it, in the intensive care unit with a friend. And so I know what that's like. And I also know, well, I, you know what? I don't want to get uh, ahead of myself here because we were just started <laughs> in a very simple place. Uh, and let's say you were talking to a seven-year-old and you just wanted to let that seven-year-old know, all right, here's a way I want you to take care of yourself. What would you tell that kid? Okay. You know you've been sick in the past. Maybe you had a cold. Maybe you even had the flu. But I want you to be more careful than ever about this one. Because you, well, actually, you probably aren't terribly likely to get sick yourself because this new virus doesn't go after children so much. It's almost as if the younger you are, the less likely you are to get it. Uh, if you have a grandmother who's in her 80s, then it's really serious. Uh, it might be really harmful for her. For you, it's probably not so harmful. However, you don't want to carry it. You don't want to give it. You don't, maybe you've been at school, you come home and you've got this bug and you don't get sick yourself but you might give it to somebody else in your family. Well, here's what you do to prevent that. And there's some things you really should start doing now and they're not bad habits to have for the rest of your life. Wash your hands. Wash your hands every time you come in from outside, every time you handle food, every time you use the bathroom. And I have some advice for you on how to wash your hands. In fact, I'd certainly like to give the same advice to the grown-ups, and that is, yeah, we grown-ups, we've been washing our hands all our lives, but guess what? There's a good chance we're not doing it right. 
And here's what you should do for washing your hands. What most, the mistake that most of us make is we don't spend enough time on it. The Centers for Disease Control recommend at least 20 seconds of washing and lathering with soap and water. And they recommend not only do you wash your hands for that whole 20 seconds, but that you also you scrub every part of your hands, including under the fingernails, because you know germs can hide there very easily. And then rinse it off. And the water you rinse it off with, it doesn't seem to make a difference whether it's hot water or cold water. So it's probably a good idea to use cold water because you use less resources. But in any case, wash your hands. But you might wonder, you're not gonna take your stopwatch out and look at your watch and see if it's 20 seconds. So how do you know if it's 20 seconds? Well, I'll tell you what I did and, and what other people recommend. In fact, you wouldn't believe this, but I actually took a course in hand washing and I did it along with some people who were working at, <laughs> at, at a local assisted living uh, center. And all the people who were working there were taught to wash their hands. Well, I was doing some volunteer work there so I decided I'll sit in on the hand washing class. And what they recommended to all of us, and I recommend to everybody else is, if you want to know what 20 seconds is, sing out loud to yourself the full twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. If you go through the whole thing, it's exactly 20 seconds. But supposing you go faster than I do or slower than I do, 20 seconds is what you're aiming at. But the CDC says that between 15 seconds and 30 seconds is probably going to do the trick. So you, you don't have to have it exactly right. But in general, wash your hands more thoroughly than you're used to. All right, CDC being Center for Disease Control, correct? Correct. All right. So now we know how to wash our hands here. And are there other things we should be thinking about? I know that I travel a lot. And I saw at the airports, there were people wearing face masks. I've also seen, we've just mentioned the CDC, Center for Disease Control, telling people, please do not buy up all the face masks because the doctors need them. Uh, where do you stand on, should we get face masks? Well, I have an answer to that which is make your own. Whoa, man, we are breaking new ground here. And Mitzi, go ahead. <laughs> First of all, the regular, what you see people wearing in the street, those are known as surgical masks. And they're not very effective at protecting you from disease. They actually do a somewhat good job of keeping you from spreading disease. But here's why they don't protect you very much from disease. Picture one in your mind. Imagine somebody who's got that, that mask over their face. They're probably breathing in air from around the edges of the mask. Probably rather little of what they breathe is, is going through the filter of the mask. So it's not sealed around their face. And that means that it's very easy to breathe in the teeny tiny virus particles. And you know that's something that's important to know about, about viruses. And what I'm gonna tell you is a little bit controversial. There, there's some people, like I read recently an article in the Wall Street Journal that contradicts this. But I've also talked with, how about quite a few doctors who disagree with the Wall Street Journal. And here's what the disagreement is, and it's gonna get right back to face masks. 
how small are the particles that endanger you? You know, if they're fairly big, if they're like droplets, uh, even microscopic droplets, they'll probably drop to the ground. I mean, they, they might fall on surfaces that can infect you. But if you're farther than six feet away from somebody, you're not going to get a large particle. However, it seems, and again, I can't know who's right, but I'm putting my money on the idea that the doctors I've talked with are correct, that the particles of the coronavirus are so small that they, they do what's called aerosolarize. And what that means is they form particles so small that they just float in the air. And to picture what it's like, Imagine that it's, it's sort of dark inside the house and there's a beam of light coming from the outside and you see all those little dust motes bouncing around in the air. They're really small, but they don't fall to the ground. They just bounce around. Can you picture that? I gotcha. Okay, now those little dust particles, except in this case, we're not talking dust particles. We're talking virus particles. Those can easily slip around the edges of your surgical mask. That's the kind of thing that you see that you see people wearing outside. Uh, so you are really, if, if you're near somebody or maybe in a room, maybe in a conference room, maybe in a classroom, maybe you're in a lecture, maybe at work, if you see somebody wearing those masks, they might protect you from them. But if the particles are in the air, you're still somewhat at risk wearing one of those face masks. So I agree with the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, that they probably aren't going to do you a lot of good. So I recommend against buying them because there are health professionals who need them more than you do and who will benefit from them more than you. So what do you do? Well, there are two major categories of face masks. I mean, there, there are dozens, but the two that we care about. One is the surgical mask, which doesn't seal the air from around your face. The other is an N95 mask. Now, you've probably heard that phrase, but you don't often see them in the street. What they are is they look sort of like a little cone and they fit tightly over your face. And I've tried using them and they're very different from the regular surgical mask because you actually kind of have to struggle to breathe through them. They fit tightly over your face. And as you draw in a breath, it almost gets tiring after 10 minutes or so. But that's because you're pulling the air from breathing through the filter. So it's, it's an entirely different thing, but it has the great advantage that because it fits tightly against your face, you're not drawing air in just from the sides that's full of those little dust moat sized things. By the way, I'm being metaphorical when I say dust moat sized. They're probably a good bit smaller than that, but they are small enough to float in the air. And you were mentioning make your own. What's that all about? Well, I've done it and I recommend it to anybody. In fact, if somebody wants to write to me, uh, I can give a PDF, I can give a file that shows pictures of it as well as directions, but I can give the directions to you right now. You take a piece of paper toweling, the kind you have in, in, in your kitchen. Like a bounty paper towel? Yeah, I happen to use bounty. <laughs> okay. Okay, take two layers of that, place one on, on top of another. Then on top of that, place a Kleenex or a household tissue. And I use Kleenex, so I'm going to tell you what I use. We're just jacking the stock price on these companies up here. <laughs> okay, go ahead. By the way, before I finish the directions for how to do it, let me tell you where I got it. The University of Hong Kong understands that, that 
face mask prices are just going through the roof. And so their professors there figured out a way of getting something that's 95% as good as the N95 one, the one that's really effective, the one that will protect you from viruses. So now to continue back on how to make a face mask that's an N95 one, or it's, it's equivalent, what you do is you've now got three layers. You've got two layers of bounty tiles. You've got a Kleenex. Now take some scissors and cut that, uh, that pile in half. So now you've got two little piles of two bounties and two Kleenex on top of each other. And you know, put one aside because we're going to focus just on the first one. You've, you've, so far, you've got enough for two masks. Now, the mask that, that you just have the, like, the basis of, it's going to be too big. So you need to cut a couple of inches of it off one end. Because if you don't cut it off, it's going to go, when you wrap it around your face, it will go ear to ear, and you don't want that. And by the way, if you have a child, uh, you might want to cut, it depends on the size of the child, but you might want to cut three or four inches off. Hold the piece of this stack of paper against your child's face and have it so that it doesn't quite reach the child's ears. That's what you're after. Okay, now that you've got it cut in half and made it smaller, what I want you to do is take masking tape and want you to tape all four edges together. So you've now got you've got something that's it's a it's three pieces of paper stacked one top of another. And they're all held together on all four edges by masking tape. Okay. The next thing to do, and we're not even halfway there yet, but guess uh -oh. what? It's worth it because <laughs> once you've once you've made five or ten of these, it just goes zip, zip, zip. The first time you make it, you might struggle through 15 minutes, but by the fifth one, it goes fast. And they're really cheap. And uh, if you're stuck at home in a quarantine, you've got time for this. And it has the huge advantage that it's stuff you probably have around the house. Now, take the two ends. The ends, they're the short ends. They're the ones that are going to fit around your face close to your ears. Take those two ends. And if you have a hole punch, you know, the kind of thing that you punch paper so that you uh, fit it into a binder, Okay, if you've got one of those, great. If not, just take something sharp and poke holes. In what you're aiming for is two holes on each end, and you're going to put string or elastic, or if you happen to have uh, elastic cording, that's just ideal. Let, let's say we're working with just one end. You take one edge, you've poked two holes in it, and the holes, let's say that they're a couple of inches apart. Then you tie the twine or whatever you're using, because what, what we're working on right now is the straps that will fit behind your ears. You're, you're going to thread the twine through one of the holes, tie a knot, then hold the mask up against your face and loop the twine around your ear and then see how long it should be to fit just right. And at that point, uh, thread, it, thread the other end through the hole, tie a knot and repeat it for the other side. And you've now got the beginnings of a face mask, but we're not there yet. Okay, that's good. What I've told you so far is going to be really useful. It's far better than nothing, but you can do so much better. And again, this is from those nice professors at the University of Hong Kong. What you do next is take tape. And if you've got surgical tape, you're really way ahead of the game. But any tape, masking tape would do. Put the mask on thread the loops behind your ears, and then every place where the mask touches your skin, 
tape it. And you're doing that so that there's no air between you wow. and Wow, so those droplets can't get in. Yeah, and we're still not done. But, but, <laughs> and Mitzi to the rescue. Okay, go ahead. Remember that these are cheap. They're not usually not something that medical professionals need. I love it. I mean, you're just so far ahead of the game because, I mean, you can make these. I bet it costs you 20 cents, if that. So 20 cents versus, uh, I mean, I've, I've seen them for sale for like $5 each. So something cheap. And, and as I said, the first one you make, it's going to be awkward and it'll take you a while. The fifth one you make, boy, you can just churn them out and you can make them for your friends and relatives and neighbors. But as I said, we're not done. We now have something that looks like a surgical mask. And assuming that you've taped it on you, of course, you don't tape it until you're ready to use it. But as I said, there is another step. And it happens to be really pretty important if you can do it. Ideally, you've got goggles, like swimming goggles, or maybe if you're a hobbyist, you've got goggles that protect you from dust if you're drilling or something. I mean, that's the ideal, but if not, the glasses that you're wearing right now are gonna do a pretty good job. So you put the mask on, you put your glasses and preferably goggles, but if you don't have goggles, uh, you use what you've got. And then can you picture two binder clips, the sort of thing where if you've got 20 sheets of paper and you want, it's too big for a paper clip. You've got one of those things that you can, I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, but I'll tell you what you want them for. You want to take a piece of plastic. The ideal for this is if you have, gosh, I don't know how many people at home would have this, but if you have a plastic file folder, what you're going to do is you're going to cut the file folder in half and you're going to attach the file folder to your glasses. And I'm not sure how to visualize this, but your goal is to have the plastic covering your face and attached to your glasses. And you know, maybe a clip, paper clip will hold it in place. Uh, the binder clips that I use do a really good job on it. And at the end of it, you are absolutely surrounded by layers and layers and layers of protection from the virus particles. And Hong Kong University says that you're 95% of the way there for being protected. And I'll tell you when you need this very elaborate scheme that I've described, because you're, you're way ahead of the game if, if you just stop with the mask. But if you can go to the next step, which is protecting your eyes and having this sheet of plastic in front of you, when you'd need that is, and I hope you never, never, never need it, but here's where you would need it. Supposing a child is sick, supposing, I don't know, your wife or husband or grandmother is sick and you have to go into their room, but you don't want to spread it to everybody else. Uh, you'd far rather <laughs> that professionals take care of this, but supposing that it's on your shoulders uh, and you've got to do it. This is the time that we do use, you would use the extreme. Wow. Uh, yeah. If you're in rural Colorado, where you're a long way from a hospital and you had to take care of a kid like that, you have just saved the day. Yeah. I mean, what I've just given you is an extreme case, but, but you know, you have a lot of listeners. There may be somebody where, where this would matter. People listen all over the world. Yeah. I'll give you my, my email address. And I will happily send you a PDF that I made, a file that will tell you how to do this and that will show pictures along the way. And my email address is mitzi at antmitzi.com. 
Okay, so what about a lot of uh, times I go into the hospital and there is this disinfectant that you can put on your hands and then you can rub your hands together. Uh, is that helpful? That's very good. However, in the sort of, I don't know, ranking of what's effective and what isn't, number one, washing your hands for 20 seconds, washing with soap and water and then rinsing it off after 20 seconds. That ranks actually as number one. And there's some science behind it because the, the foam of the lather attaches to teeny tiny particles like viruses and it just washes down the drain. So that's, that's the most effective. Second most effective is, well, I use Purell, but any, any of the sanitizers that you're gonna see commercially available, they do count as a second choice rather than the first choice. And that is because they're probably not going to like get into your fingernails and so forth where the viruses hide, but they're incredibly better than nothing. Actually, that brings me to another thing that I would recommend to all my family members. And that is, don't shake hands with anybody from now on. Just don't do it. No shaking hands. Wow. What about like bumping elbows? Is that, uh, is that the next form of greeting? Well, let's see how bad this gets. Because all the advice I, I, I have to share with you really depends on how bad it gets. So if it doesn't get any worse than it seems to be exactly right now, I think bumping elbows would be fine. But let's supposing it gets a lot worse. Supposing we get to be, I don't know, like Korea is right now with thousands and thousands of people getting it. At that point, I would certainly no longer kiss anybody on the cheeks as, as is, you know, it's popular. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't shake hands. I wouldn't hug anybody. I would sincerely try to get in the habit of keeping a certain amount of distance. And I'm not talking about, you know, you're home and you're with your kids. That's one thing. But you're out, maybe at work, maybe in the subway, whatever. You would like to keep whatever amount of distance you, you can without going crazy about it. Wow. And, and, I, and I will immediately stipulate that you're in a subway. You can't do that. So my own philosophy is do the best you can. Quite. There aren't many people who get to be perfect, but, but you can increase your odds by not shaking hands, not kissing. And then very important, uh, if, you, if you cough, you know, first of all, if you can stay home, if, you, if you're sick at all, by all means stay home. But supposing it's just sort of a regular sneezing or coughing, uh, cough into your arms because maybe in the crook of your elbow, that's, that's not going to be perfect, but it will, it will increase the odds of it's not spreading. Okay. Now, what about a flu shot? Does that help? Since we're in March and the flu season is actually winding down, I'm not sure that I do it now. And again, the advice that I'm going to give, this is advice I'd give my own family, but there, there are certainly people who would disagree with me. And you know, if your doctor has a different view of it, listen to him, not me. But in my case, the advice I would give to my own family from listening to, to various doctors and having been a health writer for most of my adult life, I don't think I'd do it. I, I would do it next year. But supposing that, you know, people sometimes get flu symptoms from the flu shot. I have. Yeah, I, I have. And I wouldn't want the burden of you're dealing with the flu shot and you're dealing with uh, the corona, new coronavirus. I wouldn't want them both together. 
But I don't want to scare anybody because I'm giving you right now an honest opinion. And if you're a doctor or medical advisor recommends something different, I can't know your case. I mean, your doctor knows all the details about you. I don't follow. If there's a professional in your life who, who tells you different, follow them. But again, advice that I would give people I love is I don't think that I want my system or your system dealing with the possibility of two flus at once. And, you know, this brings up an interesting point. I was reading that uh, sales of Corona beer have taken a dive just because of the name. Uh, And I guess that is a sign of how we can take things so far to the extreme that it's a little ridiculous. But do do we have to worry about taking things too far? Or, Or should we really be thinking that way. You know, that's such a delicate balance. And, you know, I've sometimes, oh, dare I admit this? Well, we're all friends, so I will. I sometimes think, you know, what if I were in charge? And thank God I'm not. But supposing that I were a president and I had to deal with informing people without panicking them, it'd be an extremely difficult job because whatever you say, there's going to be a certain number of people who will just say, oh, don't worry about it. And there will be another percentage who say, oh, my God, we're all going to die. And so how do you thread the needle of giving information, knowing that some people will panic and some people will dismiss it? So in a very small way, I'm kind of up against that right now, because, you know, with a full heart and with a love of my fellow human beings, I want to be helpful, but I don't want to scare people so that so that they panic. So I, I will tell you kind of my philosophy in this. I think you're being a good citizen, a good member of humanity. If you do all the preparing you can, such as, and I do recommend face masks uh, if it gets worse. I also recommend having a supply of food. And I'd love it if you'd ask me about how to get a supply of water. But I think it's very good to make these preparations in an alert, almost confident way, because to the extent that you can that you can be somebody who's healthy and can take care of other people because you've taken care of yourself, you're going to be a better member of, of the community. You know, you, you asked about people taking it too far. My wish is that people would be alert, do what they can, but to the extent that it's possible, go about your daily life without, without panic or fear. Maybe a little amount of fear is okay because you, my, my wish for everybody would be that they would have enough fear to act, but not enough fear to go to go nuts. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about the food a little. And then you mentioned the water. Uh, what should, how should we be thinking about food in, in case there is a worst case scenario? Okay. This, you know, so much depends on how bad it gets and it's perfectly possible you almost don't want to think about it, but there could be areas of the United States that would go would have happened to them what's happened in China, what's happened in Korea, what's happened in Italy, where areas get quarantined. And at that point, if you're supposed to stay in your home, what do you eat? And I'm hugely in favor of people getting food for as long as they can. And I recommend, you know, there, there's... This is a complicated and, to my mind, valuable subject. 
because I know not, not everybody's a millionaire. You can't go spend $1,000 on food. But what you can do is buy foods that last. For example, like rice, beans. And I totally recommend getting some, I don't know if you like garlic or pepper or whatever that would, uh, if you're eating rice and beans for a long time, it really helps to have some herbs and spices <laughs> that go with it. <laughs> Well, my wife is from Brazil, so we got the rice and beans covered. There we <laughs> but oh, I'm in favor of buying inexpensive foods so that, imagine, I mean, you know, God forbid that this happens, but it could. That we could be like cities in China where people just aren't allowed to go in and out because of quarantine. Well, at that point, you'd really like maybe a month or two's worth of food. I, I actually know people... I don't think they're right, but just to let you know what what some of my sources are telling me, I know people who have a year's worth of food. They think it could be that bad. I don't agree with them. I think if you've got, I kind of think that up to at least a couple of months, the more the better, just because you don't know. But on the other hand, that's the pessimistic view. Let me give you the more optimistic view. And, and I feel bad almost that I told about the, the people who are storing for a year because I don't think they're right. But they could be, we don't know. But the optimistic part, at this point, we don't know if the new coronavirus, we don't know if it's going to copy what happens to most flus. We are right now, beginning of March, at the tail end of the flu season. The February was the peak of a normal flu season in the Northern Hemisphere. And flus do seem to die down March and by April, you know, you, you've really gotten past the bad part. And the problem is at this moment, we don't know whether this flu, this, if the coronavirus, the new coronavirus is going to follow the usual pattern. But here are some reasons to be hopeful. People, you know, scientists, and what I'm about to tell you is a little bit hypothetical. Not everybody agrees, but it makes sense to me. People wonder why flus are seasonal and now, this matters because it would be really nice if this coronavirus, this new coronavirus would die down. Reasons to hope that it will is that in general, viruses do better in cold, dry weather. They simply live longer. They might last 24 hours in, in the winter. They might last much, much shorter time, possibly a few hours in the summer when it's, when it's warm and damp. Okay, that's one thing that gives us hope that, you know, we can get past this in maybe April or May. Uh, another point is during the winter, people, they're inside more. So you're, you're going to breathe more air from an infected person. And then another one, and again, this is a little bit controversial, but it makes sense to me. In the summer, when the days are longer and the sun is higher in the sky and you get more direct sunlight, you make more vitamin D and you get more melatonin. And both of these have properties that help make you more immune from viruses. When you put all those three together, we could hope that COVID-19 follows the same pattern that, that most viruses do. Well, my wife, that's her solution for everybody to go out to the beach and hang in the sun. But she's from Brazil, so that's her solution to everything. But Well, I mean, she, she might be right. At this point, we just don't know. I've told you the optimistic view. Yeah, I embrace that because, good Lord, oh, let there be a, a flu season that, that we get past. That That's the optimistic view. The somewhat less optimistic view is, 
it does seem to be taking hold in some of the countries that have temperatures right now in the 80s, and I'm thinking of Singapore. But it doesn't seem to be spreading rapidly there, so, I mean, we can hope. Okay, so here's another question that I have about if you contract the disease and just say you're healthy and you move past it, can you get it again or do you have, does your body make the antibodies to then fight it off? Okay, now this is again something that's highly controversial because I heard the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, say that you can't. Uh, the Wall Street Journal said you can't. However, there are people in other countries who say that you can. I think I'm going to put my money on the American scientists, but it is a little bit controversial. There are, I know of medical people from other countries who think that you can get reinfected and that worries them no end because the way that most viruses or most pandemics burn themselves out is you get a whole host of people who are immune to it because they've developed kind of a herd protection. And so the thing burns itself out. But if you can get infected over and over again, I mean, that's just dire. Because that means that it's just not going to burn itself out. I mean, and if, if that was the case and the disease did, it was surviving in the heat, that's when it sounds like we'd be in big trouble. Well, again, let's hope that what Dr. Azar says is correct. I mean, you know, he knows more than, surely more than I do and more than any of my sources. So, you know, if I had to bet, I'd bet on him that, that you do develop antibodies and you don't get reinfected. Okay. Let's talk about something that you alluded to at the start uh, and that I kind of pushed away for a second just to get back to the basics. But you were talking about the economic costs to this and how it might affect us. What are ways that we might not be expecting this to hit us economically? Well, it all depends on how many cases there are. If there are just a few cases, the fear factor exists. And I don't know, as of this weekend, the stock market had gone down in one week, 11.5%. That's huge. So you know, the fear factor can have an impact. But supposing instead of just a few cases, supposing that gets to be thousands of cases or tens of thousands of cases, or God forbid, millions of cases. And we have precedent for this. This happened during the Spanish flu in, in 1918. Some people guessed that 50 million people died. And that's when the population was not as connected as we are today and there weren't as many people. So you know, at its worst, it could be millions of people. Now, I don't expect this to happen, but here's what could happen as a worst case scenario. Supposing 20% of the people who are operating like the coal mines or the railroads that deliver the coal to the power plants, supposing that many people were ill and weren't coming to work and somewhere around between 1% and 5% of them were dying, that would mean that the other people who work in the mines, in the trains, the power plants and the coal makes the power plants possible if it's a coal-fired plant, which most are. Okay, people aren't coming to work because either they're sick or they're afraid of getting sick. What happens 
to our electrical system? What happens to our power? What happens to our electricity? What even happens to our ability to pump water? You know, at its worst, it could be extraordinarily bad. But let me quickly mention that I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, we're, we're just imagining the worst. Or let me put it differently. As a medical friend of mine says, it's a non-zero chance. And to translate that into English, it means, boy, it's really remote, but it's not impossible. Okay. What about if this place that you're just talking about did come to reality and we did need to get water? Because uh, you mentioned that before, and I, I pushed it aside, and now I'm going back to it. Uh, in I fact- thought you did, because this what I'm going to share with you could be life-saving. I mean, I hope and pray that it never is. And I'm not, I'm not in business to scare people. So what I'm about to describe, the, in, in my opinion, the odds of your ever needing this are close to zero. So we're, we're talking almost science fiction, but nevertheless, on the chance that somebody would benefit from knowing this sometime, I will tell you a water source that you might not have thought of. That's your water heater. Typically a water heater has holds between 30 and 60 gallons of water. And that happens to be water that you can drink. And so how do you get at it? And there's some steps to follow. And step number one, find your water heater. Then to be ultra safe, turn off your electricity. If it's a gas fired water heater, turn off the gas. Then look where the, where the input water is, you know, what the pipe that fills the tank. And you'll find a valve probably at the top of, of your tank. Turn that input one off. And now look at the bottom of your tank and you'll see something that looks like a faucet. And it's very likely to have threads on it, the kind that you could attach a garden hose to. If you turn that just a little bit and you've got a bucket underneath, you can get some water that you can drink. You, you can keep it in the tank and just use it as needed. Wow. that's We're talking the doomsday scenario there, but it's good to know. Yeah, by the way, I, I just want to emphasize a hundred times over, I consider myself an upbeat person. I'm not into scaring people. Help me think of a way of describing just how unlikely this is. Okay. Well, what... What's the best possible outcome? Because uh, obviously now, I was just watching a basketball uh, game or a highlight from a basketball game where the players came out and they kind of, instead of shaking hands like they did, we've seen for many, many years, they kind of bump fists from a distance doing exactly what you're saying. No more shaking hands. Uh, so people are aware of this. We're going to approach tomorrow in a different way than we approached yesterday. And suppose we can get it under control. Is this just going to change the way we live for now? Or will this actually change our hygiene and the way we wash going forward? Well, actually, I'm much happier being optimistic than, than the pessimistic stuff I was talking about. If this did change the way, how much we washed our hands. And by the way, oh, there's something I left out. 
here's one of the reasons you want to watch, wash your hands, because typically you'll touch your face dozens of times a day and you don't even know it. Uh, and that's one of the ways of, of transferring germs to your mouth, your nose, or even your eyes. Yeah, and you mentioned the goggles before, uh, and and that's, I guess, because a lot of people don't realize that that's a, a place of transport. Actually, let me dive into a quick story about how important that is, and then we can circle back to the more optimistic view. A quick story about touching your face. This is a lecture that I heard from a professor at the University of California at Davis. He began the lecture and he looked so strange. He was dressed the way you wouldn't expect a doctor to. He wore a black shirt, a black jacket, a black bow tie, and he gave his lecture. It was very interesting. And part of what he said is, your eyes are the almost your biggest vulnerability because your mouth is very defended against germs. Your nose is somewhat defended. Your eyes, in comparison, are really pretty vulnerable. So touching your eyes is a really bad idea. Well, at the end of his talk, he turned on one of those black lights, the kind that you might see in a nightclub where things glow. And he told us that he had put powder on his hands in which he would show where his hands had touched. And to the amazement of the audience, including me, when that black light was on, the powder showed every place that he had touched and his his coat was just you know glowing, but so was his face, so was his nose, so was his mouth, so was his forehead. We are totally unconscious of how much we touch our face or, or the rest of us. It's amazing. So, you know, it's a really good idea to get in the habit of not touching your face, but that's a hard habit to break. Okay, now back to the optimistic part of when this coronavirus problem is behind us, we have a serious chance of having less flu forevermore because in the most optimistic scenario, we wash our hands more. Maybe we don't shake hands anymore. Maybe we come, become like the Japanese and bow. You know, there's a whole lot of habits that result in 30 million infections a year in this country alone. What if we no longer had those 30 million infections? What it was if it was only 5 million because we had learned better hygiene? I mean, something good could come out of this. Well, that's a good way to sort of wrap this up because at least it ends on a, a positive note. At the same time, uh, I'm glad you did point out the possible scenarios of millions of people being infected and what that might cause. But really, it comes back to what I was talking about in the beginning. If we all took this advice the way you might tell your grandkids, we're all going to be in better shape. I think so. You know, I'm sure hoping and praying that this turns out to be a seasonal flu where it just goes away. But you can't count on it. So I think it doesn't hurt one little bit to be aware, but it probably hurts a lot to panic. Let me end with one other thing. All right. which is I, I study this kind of thing a lot. I still sleep well at night. I'm still optimistic. I still think that we're going to come out okay. But it doesn't hurt to prepare. And some of the things that I've recommended, they cost almost nothing. And for the food storage, like the rice and beans, eh, you can eat it later, they'll last. Well, you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to go wash my hands and sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. (laughs) I cannot thank you enough. This podcast is heard all over the world. There may be people who need that mask you recommended from Hong Kong. And uh, once again, we're going to give them your email address so that you could send them a link uh, so that it sounds like you'll give them a visual to ha- to on how to make that mask with the, the paper towel and the tissue and a little masking tape. Uh, you may have just saved some lives here. Wouldn't that be heaven? I mean, oh, it would make me so happy if, if our conversation today helped people. Okay, so one last time, where can they reach you? Mitzi, spelled M-I-T. Z-I, if you're old enough, remember the actress Mitzi Gaynor. So Mitzi at AuntMitzi.com. There we go. This is beautiful. I cannot tell you how happy I am and educated I am about the little things that I can do. And I'm so grateful to you. And, you know, as this thing moves along, Uh, If there are still questions, I'd love to have you back to give updates so we can just get information when we need it as this is all playing out. Okay, I would adore to do that. And let's hope that when I'm on your show again, that I get to say, oh, I was much too much of a fear monger. It turned out much better. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for preparing us either way. And... I'm just so grateful, and I have a feeling a lot of people who are listening uh, will share that gratitude, just knowing they can sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and make the world a little better. Okay, because Aunt Mitzi loves you. (laughs) That about wraps it up. want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. Aunt Mitzi's advice may save somebody somewhere in the world. And if that happens, Tim, you've done it again. Well, I want to thank all of you who are going to share this podcast with friends so that everyone can get clear information on how to protect themselves against coronavirus. I want to thank Mark Victor Hansen for introducing me to Aunt Mitzi and Aunt Mitzi for the lifetime of knowledge she's accumulated and is now dispensing. If the virus does continue to advance, we'll have Aunt Mitzi on with updates down the road. And I want to thank Sportique, my sponsor, for bringing it all to you. Times like these, it's good to feel comfortable, and you're not going to feel any more comfortable than when you're in your Sportique hoodie, Sportique sweats. So go to sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com, and use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount, and you can roam in comfort. Wherever you are in the world, be healthy, be happy, and remember to lather up for 20 seconds. Cheers! Cheers!